You've tuned in to the Message to Kings podcast, where we tell the complete history. Welcome back to the Message to Kings podcast. This is your host, Brett Houston. Episode 25, Wars with King Sihon and King Og Abation. Last episode, we covered Moses' sin and the bronze snake and the emergence from the wilderness. The last two episodes had lots of hidden or prophetic meaning, and it was amazing to see how everything pointed to Jesus. I've always heard it, but it's really becoming more true and deeper than I realized as we get into these podcasts. Saying all of that, this episode will be more historical. We'll be pulling from more extra-biblical references because the biblical accounts are so scarce. There is not a a lot of biblical coverage, but the actual wars against two kingdoms are so significant that they lead to a complete destruction of two people groups. For this reason, we're going to spend the entire episode on these two wars. Geographically, this episode begins at the Arnon Gorge, which is east of the Dead Sea. From here, the Israelites venture to a place called Beer, where it says, The Lord says to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing about it, spring up, O well. Then they ventured on to Mount Pisgah. And it's such a scarce account about this well and how they sang there. And it seems so out of place, and for this reason I've been pondering this scene for a while. Specifically, this moment at the well prior to the warfare about to erupt has some has to have some serious meaning. And I paused at this account and thought about how it was different. This time Moses didn't hit or speak to the rock. Instead, it says God gave them water, but there was no grumbling about it. And it was the people who sang out. The Israelites sang and praised the Lord and provision occurred at this location. I see this subtle event as a transition for they have exited the wilderness. A new generation will be going to war. The enemies will shift and transform. A new generation will find themselves struggling with different things. No longer will rebellion be the enemy, but the enemy will be more literal and external. Covetousness and idol worship will be the new enemy. Israel will have its challenges, but rebellion will not be their challenge. The future challenges will be with handling of God's blessings. Will Israel covet the things of Canaan? Will they set themselves apart? Also, victories will come through aggressive force instead of prayerful action. It will be a fight, a fight for purity. It will come with courage and strength. While Moses' generation fought their victories through faith and resting in God to perform wonders, for God to act with Moses, he had to declare God's word and watch him perform wonders. For God to act with Joshua, Joshua would have to take up his sword. It's a different generation with a different assignment. Rise up, O well, they sang. Rise up, O well. Rise up, O well. Rise up, you new generation, to the promises of God. Moses warred with Pharaoh, and God redeemed the people. Joshua and the people will war against their enemies, and God will deliver them. This next generation understood teamwork and pluralistic thinking. They were devoted to God. They were not rebellious. Unlike the previous generation, they were up to the challenge ahead of them. It was the people, not just a few, who cried out, and the provision occurred. The key here is the entire people cried out. 
It would take all the people to take the land. It was unity. God was getting unity with this generation. It wasn't faultless. No way was it faultless. But it was a generation that typified what Jesus was praying in John 17, that they may be in complete unity to fulfill God's promise. In summary, a new generation was rising up, just like a spring from the desert floor. Never would the land be the same, for a generation with the anointing of God was poised to finally fulfill the promise of Abraham. From Mount Pisgah, a different scene slowly develops. The terrain starts to shift and grasslands and valleys begin to emerge. After years and years in the desert, just to see grass would have been incredible. We take it for granted, but rolling hills and giant rivers would have been a spectacular scene to the Israelites. All right, so let's talk geography. Picture the modern state of Israel. It has four borders, ignoring for the moment Gaza and the West Bank, Lebanon to the north, Syria to the northeast, Jordan to the east, Egypt to the south and southeast. To the west is the Mediterranean. Mount Pisgah is located east of the Jordan River and northeast of the Dead Sea. So if I lost you, I'll put a link on the Facebook page of some great maps of this time period. So just north of Mount Pisgah is two kings and their kingdoms. Immediately north of Pisgah is King Sihon of the Amorites. The Amorites were a group of descendants of Canaan who lived all over Canaan. The Amorites were considered a people group, but there was lots of Amorite kingdoms. Sihon is east of the Jordan, while the other kingdoms were west of the Jordan. King Sihon's kingdom was based out of Hezbon, and above his kingdom was King Og of Bashan and his kingdom. Both of these kingdoms will war against Moses and the Israelites in short order. The biblical accounts of these wars are limited, but before war occurs with the kings, there's a verse in Numbers 21.14 that references an extra-biblical book called The Wars of the Lord. It appears this book is lost to history, but if it was referenced in the Bible, there must have been some copy of it at some point. And for the biblical writer to reference an extra-biblical book, then we should probably consider the same for research into these battles. And of course, it would be ideal to read the actual book of the Wars of the Lord. You know, maybe in heaven one day, it would be cool to read this book. And being a fan of military history, I would enjoy reading this book in the libraries of heaven one day. All right, back to the action. Here is the biblical account. Deuteronomy 2, 24. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hands Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you of all, on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. From the desert of Kedemoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, Let us pass through your country. We will stay on the main road. We will not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot. As the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for us, until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. 
For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands, and as he has now done. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. And when Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jehaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took over all of his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors, but the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured we carried off for ourselves. Now two things ring out to me. One, that terror went out through the land under all countries and kingdoms under heaven to be afraid of the Israelites. I find it fascinating that God would do this. Then taking that concept throughout history, thinking even broader term that God could do this or has done this, that God could do or has done many times sent a terror ahead of the army that he favors. What a crazy thought. We'll probably round about this one on later podcast. But the other thing is, he made Sihon obstinate toward the Israelites. This happened to Pharaoh, and will happen over and over. God is working to draw the enemy out. He is setting a trap, just like the Red Sea. Drawing the enemy out for battle, only to destroy them in their entirety. This will happen again many times over. It will specifically happen a few podcasts from now with the, with the battle with the five kings of the Amorites. And it will happen most famously in the time of King Hezekiah and the Assyrian army hundreds of years from now. Josephus adds some detail um, to this war with King Sihon. Um, He does confirm that that terror went before Israel. But he adds something about King Sihon, that he was very brave prior to battle. But upon confrontation, they were routed. King Sihon being neither wise in counsel nor brave in action. Josephus goes on to add that his friend, King Og, comes to aid him, and we'll get to that part later. When I try to picture this event, for some reason I think of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. When I think of this scene, I like to think of the scene in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, when Gandalf leads the cavalry and lifts the siege near the end of the movie. The great prophet, shining white with the staff slash weapon. Because the account of Moses and his health prior to his death, which states he was 120 years old and his eyes were not dim, I imagine Moses leading the troops from the front despite his age. After all, he had waited his entire life for this moment. Moses shining in the glory of the Lord, carrying his staff and riding a horse. That's how I see it. You know, uh, let's keep going with this. No strategy, just straight up. Two kingdoms marching each other. Israel marching against King Sihon. Moses was leading the entire mass of the Israelites. King Sihon led his entire army. King Sihon, a giant, he ran at the Israelites. And when Moses and King Sihon came at each other, a blinding light smashed the battlefield emerging from Moses' staff when he collides with King Sihon. And when the light subsides, Moses has beheaded King Sihon, and the Israelites, with terrifying angels, sweep the field, exterminating the Amorites. And with astonishing speed, the Israelites took over King Sihon's kingdom. 
This was, of course, my fictionalized message to King's version of the battle. But when I when I think of this account and this battle with King Hesh, with King Sihon, this is this is how I picture it: Moses going out in style. From here, King Og rallies his troops to confront the Israelites. Here is the biblical account, Deuteronomy 3. Next we turned and went up along the road towards Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet us in battle at Edria. The Lord said to me, Do not be afraid of him, for I have delivered him into your hands, along with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So the Lord our God also gave into our hands Og, king of Bashan, and all his army. We struck them down, leaving no survivors. At that time we took all of his cities. There was not one of the sixty cities that we did not take from them, the whole region of Argob, Og's kingdom, and Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars, and there were also a great many unwalled villages. We completely destroyed them, as we had done with Sihon, king of Heshbon, destroying every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the plunder from all their cities we carried off for ourselves. So at that time we took from these two kings and the Amorites the territory east of the Jordan from the Arnon Gorge as far as Mount Hermon. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephidites. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. Alright, so you gotta love the final entry. The king's bed is still in Rabbah to this day. It's almost like it was treated like a museum figure piece of its day. Too bad his bedstead has been lost to history. This would have been one crazy piece of furniture in the Louvre. Who knows, maybe it's in the Smithsonian archives. All right, so we covered the biblical account, and this is for sure the historical event. Now Josephus adds a little here. Here is Josephus's account from the Antiquities of the Jews. When matters were come to this state, Og the king of Galead fell upon the Israelites. He brought an army with him, and in haste to the assistance of his friend Sihon. But though he found him already slain, yet did he resolve still to come and fight the Hebrews, supposing he should be too hard for them, and being desirous to try their valor. But failing on his hope, he was both himself slain in the battle, and all his army was destroyed. So Moses passed over the river Jabbok and overran the kingdom of Og. He overthrew their cities and slew all their inhabitants, who yet exceeded in riches all the men in that part of the continent on account of the goodness of the soil and the great quantity of their wealth. Now Og had very few equals, either in the largeness of his body or the handsomeness of his appearance. He was also a man of great activity in the use of his hands, so that his actions were not unequal to the vast largeness and handsome appearance of his body. And men could easily guess at his strength and magnitude when they looked upon his bed at Rabbath, the royal city of the Ammonites. Its structure was of iron, its breadth, its width was four cubits, and the length was nine cubits. 
However, his fall did not only improve the circumstances of the Hebrews for the present, but by his death he was the occasion of further good success for them. For they presently took those sixty cities which were encompassed with excellent walls and had been subject to him, and all got both in general and particularly a great prey. So, researching these wars, I stumbled upon lots of Jewish traditional stories. Some of them were quite colorful and extreme exaggerations, and I thought about discarding them, for they really aren't history, but they are very interesting. So, when I thought about sharing these stories, when I was in high school, I remembered that required reading was the Odyssey, the Greek myth. Seriously, no one believed the Odyssey. You know, no one believed that Odysseus confronted Cyclops and killed him and sailed past the sirens. I mean, th- that wasn't true. No one believes these stories. At least I hope so. Uh, they're studying. They're studied today because they're cultural. They fit into a historic context of sorts. They're great works of literature and make a good story. Well, that's my take. So if Greek mythology is required reading, why not add a little Jewish mythology? So I don't truly believe these accounts, and I consider them more legendary than history, but here I go. So I'm going to merge many accounts from Jewish tradition here for the sake of time. Sihon and Og were both Nephilim, and they were brothers. Og was a giant of immeasurable size, and his sons were larger than even him. Sihon was the lead king over all the Amorites. The Lord sent bees a spirit, to pull Sihon out of his strongholds to come out to fight the Israelites. Moses smote Sihon, and Og arrived too late to save him. And this is where it gets weirder. It says, Og picks up a mountaintop and goes to hurl it at the Israelites. And before it leaves his shoulders, an angel from God breaks it over his neck, throwing him down. Now somehow Og gets back up, And Moses arrives and smotes him in his ankles and then crawls upon him and slays him. So that was a combination of all the Jewish traditional stories put together. And there's even more weirder ones on on King Og. So wasn't that fascinating? King Og was the last of the Rephidim. And who are the Rephidim? Post-flood, there was a few different lines of Nephilim. There's the Anakites, the Rephidim, there's the Zamzanites, and there was a few other lines. And it states King Og was the last of the Rephidim, which is pretty interesting. So also looking at actual the actual Hebrew, you can see that Og means long-necked. And I like to think of the Nephilim as awkward, awkward-looking creatures, almost ogre-like. And maybe Og had a bizarre long neck, but more significantly, it is his representation of what long neck means. It implies pride. Before the Israelites could enter the land, they had to conquer their pride and cut it down. It was the tallest of the giants and the tallest of their demons. It had to be thrown down first before entering the land. Or the prize of the land would be to their merit, not God's. Israelites have now conquered two kingdoms, and they began to consolidate their power. All the people of these foreign lands were gone, but their livestock remained, and it was a prosperous land with mighty abundant grasslands and produce. The terrain now has finally shifted, and prosperity was in their face. 
And as the terror of the Israelites went ahead of them, enemies would be preparing for them. In the north, the Midianites, with King Balak of the Moabites, were doing all they could to prepare for the Israelites. In the next episode, we'll be discussing Balaam, the great sorcerer who is employed to destroy the Israelites. And across the Jordan, Jericho was being barred up to prepare for the siege that would determine its fate. And behind Jericho, five kings of the Amorites were preparing to set aside their differences to ally against the Israelites. All while a great man, Joshua, was being readied for the fulfillment of his destiny. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, I'd like to address the older audience. In these battles, it does not include the name Joshua. Moses is the only leader referenced. Moses was 120 years old when he went to war. That's old. Moses, the ancient sage, the friend of God, one of the most famous men of all time, didn't believe in retirement. He pursued his purpose to the final end. Knowing his end was coming, knowing he couldn't enter Canaan, he fought directly or indirectly in these wars. Of course, according to Jewish legend, he was in the thick of the fighting. Two episodes from now, we'll be covering his strange death, He was a man who defied age and would have continued if it wasn't for God's word. No matter your age, God does not have you relegated to early retirement. I like to think of Moses truly going out on top. Moses really showed God has a plan and purpose for everyone regardless of their age. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss the sorcerer Balaam, the traveling witch who ventured all the way to Canaan to curse Israel, but was rebuked by a donkey. He failed in his cursing, but nearly succeeded in his assignment. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com. Tune in next week to the Message to Kings podcast.